following uh, Melanie. Shall we offer a special welcome back to David and Eleanor Minor? We're grateful for your self-return, your safe return, and we missed you. And if you have a Bible with you, beloved, our text is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Why are we doing this series? Well, the sonnet asks the question, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. The Apostle Paul beat him to it. Or was it a lady sonnet? I don't know. And God, uh, God, through the Apostle Paul, is counting the ways God has loved you from all eternity, choosing you to belong to his son, in time and space, calling you through the preaching of the gospel, justifying you by your faith. Next week, adopting you into his family, sanctifying you to the end that you might be glorified in his presence forever. These are the concrete ways God loves you. And it's all in this wonderful text, which actually comes in the form of a prayer, the last two verses, with a breathtaking preamble showing us the breadth of the way God claims and keeps you. I never get tired of this text. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm, hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Several years ago, Janice and I were traveling on the West Virginia Turnpike to Kentucky to see our son. And we stopped at the first toll booth. Stuck up my hand with my $2. And the lady said, go ahead. I protested. I haven't paid. You know, there's alarms, there's cameras, there's fines. <laughs> she said, it's paid, go. So I looked down at the little green light. It said paid. I looked up at her again. She said, it's paid, go. <laughs> so we went. Hooray, we're making money on the West Virginia Turnpike. This uh, seemed too good to be true. What a pure gift of grace. We didn't deserve this. So as we drove along, we began to process how in the world did this come about? And then we remembered. Right before us, going through the toll booth, was a pickup truck towing a car. And it must have been the pickup driver paid his toll, went through, and the responder on the car did the electronic toll thing and registered, and when we got there, that was applied to us. What a picture of God's salvation 
That's not supposed to be funny. <laughs> but see, there's something in us that protests. I owe. I have to pay. Even after you've been saved. Is there not something in you nagging your conscience? Don't I owe God? And this beautiful doctrine of justification is to save you from that. Not just save you for Jesus from your sins, but to save you from that nagging sense. We need the doctrine of justification every day. So let's tease out three questions. Number one, why does anything need to be done for you? Number two, what has God in fact done for you and his son? And number three, what blessings abound to those who own the son? Number one, why does anything need to be done for you? You may not believe in God. You've joined us this morning who believe in God. We're so grateful. We have at least this much in common. We all ache for an existence without pain, without sickness, without death, without sorrow, without conflict. We all do. And whether a believer or an unbeliever, we long for a life of love, beauty, pleasure, and happiness. Why? Well, we believe the Bible tells us that's the way he set things up. In the beginning of the Bible, God created you and me to live in that kind of environment. No death, no, no struggle, no conflict, no sorrow, no tears, no pain, no sadness, only pleasure, love, beauty. And the key thing about that existence is that God is the linchpin of that kind of life. God's at the center of it. His presence, most precious, his glory most prominent. Inexplicably, the first pair, Adam and Eve, said, we can get along fine without you. We'll fashion a life better than the one you made on our own terms. We'll decide for ourselves the life you created us to live, what it should look like. Your word's untrustworthy. Please keep your grubby hands off my life. The Bible calls that original sin. It would be like strumming Andy's guitar with an axe or pounding Elizabeth's keyboard with a jackhammer. Neither of those instruments were designed to be played like that. Life wasn't designed to be contracted on our own terms. And what I want you to see is Adam and Eve's initial, we don't desire or need you, God. That thing is stuck in all of our hearts. Boys and girls, you were born, as were the rest of us, with a thing stuck in your heart that says, I don't need or desire God, even though human beings, for the most part, are not conscious of that rebellion. Well, what's the fallout from that? The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms. 
And you might say this next part of the sermon is not for the faint of heart. The fallout is we have no appetite for God. Romans 3, 10 to 18, condensed to these portions. There's none righteous, not even one. None who understands spiritual reality. None who seeks for God. All have turned aside. There's none who desires good, and he ends, Paul ends it with, there's no fear of God before their eyes, which is exactly the way to live. If you want to be human, you want to experience true human glory, you have the fear of the Lord in your eyes, a loving sense of reverence and awe who God is. We have no appetite for God because of this thing stuck in us. We don't desire or need God. Secondly, we have no ability to obey or please Him. Runs all through the Bible. Here's one example from Romans 8. The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. See, we don't need, we don't desire you. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's a horrible thing. We have, thirdly, no apprehension of spiritual things. When Paul is reminding his readers, who were largely Gentile in this case, don't go back to that former manner of life, he actually he actually peels back the layers of what that life looked like at a spiritual level when he writes, you walked in the futility of your mind, being darkened in your understanding, excluded from the life of God, if that wasn't bad enough, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. So when God comes knocking on a heart that hasn't dealt with, I don't need or desire you, there's there's no answering that knock. They have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. In our unbelief, we're not passive. (laughs) We're actively pursuing things. That leaves us forth with no affection for God. John 3, 19, the light has come into the world. Now, don't look at the rest of the verse. How would you... you think that should be finished, that sentence. The light has come into the world and everyone flocked to the light. Good, finally there's light in this confused, mixed up world. The light has come into the world. Good, come light, shine on me, love me. How does the verse finish? The light has come into the world. Men love the darkness rather than the light. It shows you the absolute insanity, irrationality, and absurdity of sin to love darkness rather than the light of God in Christ. And because God made us for himself, what made the created state so glorious? Ultimately, the worship of God. What do we have now, born after the fall? We have this mechanism in us, I don't need, I don't desire God. But we are still worshipers. We're still bent on giving ourselves over to something. And obviously, if I don't need or desire God, we'll give ourselves to something else. The Bible calls this idolatry. There's a ve- we live for God substitutes. There's a very vivid picture of this in Jeremiah 2. I put it in the outline for you. Has a nation changed its gods? This is speaking to Israel. Even though they are no gods. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. See, everything you do in life, you're pursuing a kind of glory you think that'll make you profit. And if God isn't at the center of it, you end up destroying yourself. 
And then Jeremiah calls on creation as covenant witnesses to the covenant God made with his people. Be appalled, O heavens, the stars, the moon, the sun. These are God's witnesses at the covenant law-breaking of Israel. Be appalled at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Is that evil? I don't need you, I don't desire. Is that an evil? Is that evil? You'll never be saved if you don't believe that's evil, to forsake God, the fountain of living waters. And the second, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can't hold water. There's something you're saying in your life, this is the thing, if I have it, I'm whole, I'm happy, I'm significant, I'm secure. And God's word is saying, those things never hold. You're just living for those things. You're poking holes in your precious soul. The practical effect is we have no accurate assessment of ourselves or God. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So you know you're getting close to the kingdom of God. You know you're getting close to true spirituality when you say, I don't really understand myself at a deep soul level. I'm not sure I get me. Proverbs 16, verse 2, All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs his motives. Translated, you, were, you and I were born with a capacity, with a propensity to underestimate the power and consequences of sin and to overestimate our own ability to be good and live righteously. Therefore, we have no amity with God. You know, I know it's a bunch of A's. That means peace. When Paul wants us to understand the spiritual condition in which we were when the grace of God swooped in and saved us, he uses four potent adjectives in Romans 5. While we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, while well, yet for sinners, and then if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to the Son. Those are the four words that describe our best human efforts as relates to loving God. Helpless, sinners, ungodly, enemies. Hang on, hang on, it's going to get better. <laughs> Therefore, we're alienated from God. Colossians 1.21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. Incidentally, sidebar, that last phrase is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. I'm not going to talk about that now. Would you agree with me that the Bible seeks to paint human sin in the most jarring of terms? I'll give you some more terms if you're not convinced. It talks about sin as pollution, corruption, rebellion, enmity, spiritual adultery, missing the mark, overstepping the bounds, treason, even hating God. Do theologians have a term that sums up all this stuff? They do. 
You might run across this in your reading. Theologians call this total depravity. Uh, uh, actually, a more helpful term would be radical corruption. Radical from the Latin radix, which means root. It simply is saying at the root of who we are, there is corruption. Because total depravity doesn't mean you're as bad as you totally could be. The only reason you and I are not as bad as we could be is the grace of God, the common grace of God. But total depravity is this. All of the human constitution is affected by sin. Your mind, your heart, your will, your body, you're completely, totally affected by sin such that there's nothing in me that would put me at a disposition to seek God. Conversely, there's nothing in me that would move God to seek me because it's in me. Now, you might be thinking, this preacher is, he had a bad egg this morning for breakfast. Why is he so negative? It's not me. It's the Bible, first of all. <laughs> but secondly, why is the Bible so brutal, so condemning, so jarring? For the same reason the doctor wants to give you a true diagnosis for your condition. He wants you to get well and be healthy. God loves you enough that in order to be healthy and well, you've got to know what God has come to save you from, yourself. It's far worse than you thought. God is showing you that you need cleansing from the pollution of sin, deliverance from the penalty of sin, liberation from the tyranny of sin, clothing with the righteousness without which no one will stand in the presence of God, and you need a mediator to usher you into the presence of God. And look, think of our culture. Some of you work in workplaces where you have special clearance. You need credentials to get in. I couldn't walk in and see you in your work offices. There, you, credentials are needed. Security clearances are needed. We get that. How much more with God? <laughs> And so the question is, where do you find the credentials to waltz into the presence of an absolutely holy God who says, I'm a consuming fire, meaning he will burn up any sin that's in his presence? Where do you get the credentials? That's the second point in the sermon. What has God done for you in his son? There are three ways to answer that question. What has God done for you? Number one, Nothing. you got to do it yourself. Number two, he's partially helped you. Number three, he's done everything, so you receive his salvation as a gift. So what option do you prefer? Number one, it's all you. Would you like it all to be on you? You pay the toll yourself. Number two, it's part God, part you. You go halvesies with the toll collector. You give half the toll, the toll collector gives the other half. Or number three... It's none of you. It's paid. Go. Which option would you like? What's wrong with options one and two? The toll's too high. You don't have it. it the, the toll demand is absolute perfection. You need to be perfect to stand in the presence of God. And you say, well, that's, is that really fair? Well, let me ask you. Maybe you don't believe in God, but you believe in a place where you dream of a place that everything's perfect. Do you really want selfishness, injustice, murderers, hateful people in your perfect place? Of course you don't. Neither does God. The presence of God forever will not have an ounce 
of sin in it. Translated, no one can buy their way to heaven, bribe their way to heaven, talk their way to heaven, perform their way to heaven, charm their way to heaven, or reason their way to heaven. Salvation is good news. It's a gospel because God reconciles us to himself, not through our efforts, but through the efforts of his son Jesus, through a representative, through our substitute, Jesus in our place. It's paid. Go. And the Bible calls this justification. I admit the word justification is not in the text. The concept clearly is underneath the word in verse 13, saved, the word in verse 14, gospel, and the word in verse 16, grace. Justification is implicit in all of those things. So question, what exactly did Jesus come to earth to do? Did he come to make the strong stronger like a personal trainer? Is Jesus simply a great moral teacher teaching you the way to go? Now do your best, try your hardest. No, Jesus is your salvation. He lived the perfect life you could never give God. He died the death your sins deserved. In other words, he removed your pollution on the cross and he clothes you in his righteousness. Theologians call this a double imputation, a double accounting. Our sin to Jesus, his righteousness to us. It's this verse from 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Some of you live financially tight. Well, suppose the bank account drops to zero and a couple checks come through that you didn't anticipate and your account goes to negative $1,000. You're in the hole. There's nothing you can do about it. You have fees to pay, and you need a positive balance. Jesus pays the fee, and he puts $10 trillion in your account. You have it all through Jesus. Beloved, go to any other religious leader with this. I don't need God. I don't desire God. And what will they tell you? Every religious leader will tell you, keep the rules. Try your best. Be sincere. Go to Jesus with that. What will he tell you? Be a good person? No. He will say, it's paid. Go. It's paid. Go. On what authority? There's, on this authority, there's nothing lacking in the perfect moral righteousness of Jesus that you need to add anything to it. There's nothing lacking in the death of Jesus for sinners on the cross that you need to pay any more to God. The lady said to me, go, it's paid. I couldn't pay the toll. Why? The other car was charged. Jesus has been charged with your sin if you believe in him. God will never charge you with that sin. Jesus says, it's paid, go. The woman may have may just as well have said to me as I handed out my two dollars, to tell us die. I would know that she knew John 19.30. That's the Greek translation of Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished. It's a commercial term. It's paid. Go. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been great? The toll collector saying, you're a Christian. To tell us die. Beloved, that's why reconciliation with God is through faith in Christ, grace in Christ, grace, faith. And I got the distinct impression the toll collector had seen this before by virtue of her impatience. The world has never seen a salvation like this. 
the patience of God with sinners to send his son to die for his enemies. Lastly, we could say more about it. Last question, what blessings abound to those who own the son and whom the son owns? I'll just mention two. Access. See, we had access to the West Virginia Turnpike because she said, it's paid, go. You have access to God. We're going to sing at the end of the service, and can it be, the last refrain. Bold I approach the eternal throne. Where's the boldness in your life? Is it not there because you don't believe? It's paid. Go to the Father. Do you live like a person who's been around Jesus? What would that person smell like? What would they look like? What would they speak like? The devil would have you doubt this glorious status. When he seeks to condemn you, you should say, it's paid, go! As you desire to live a serious Christian life, you will find yourself failing again and again and again, and the moral law looks like it stands up to condemn you. You can say to the moral law, it's paid, go! You're resting in the work of Jesus. And that, secondly, is where your comfort is. This is the point of the text, verse 16. He's given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Read justification through the work of Jesus received by faith as a gift. Good, eternal comfort and good hope by grace. What is the source of your comfort? It is the utter sufficiency of Jesus to save. He doesn't fail. There's no failure in the mission of Jesus. And why does he call it eternal comfort? Because Jesus lives forever. And if he's your comfort and he's your confidence, then, it, then you also are eternal like he is. So finally, what does it look like for you and me to be people who live with bold access and comfort? Well, do you need wisdom on this, on this situation in your life? Do you need wisdom? It's paid. Ask. Are you fearful? There are things playing with your mind, speculating fearful. There are things threatening your welfare in your life. Are you fearful? It's paid. He'll never forsake you. Are you burdened? Your heart's heavy. You know what it is. Losing sleep, losing your appetite, pulling out your hair. Are you burdened? It's pay. He daily bears our burdens. Are you tired? It's paid. Fall into his arms. Are you sick? It's paid. He's the great physician. You're thinking about a new venture, maybe for the kids, for yourself, a missions thing, a way to use your resources, a new place to move. I don't know. You're thinking about a new venture. It's paid. Cry out for guidance. You're grieved. It's paid. He'll give you comfort. You see someone in need. It's paid. Expend yourself for them. John Newton probably captured it best when he wrote, 
Dear name, the rock on which I build my shield and hiding place, my never-failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. Let's pray. What an amazing thing, Lord, that you, by your blood, have justified the men and women and children before me. You've made them clean. You've dealt with the thing in our hearts, I don't desire or need God. You've dealt with that. We couldn't. You did. What glory. What glory. So fill us afresh with sight of the majesty of Jesus. His death, his resurrection, the hope, the comfort that's ours in him, the access. We do indeed come boldly to the throne of grace where we are promised to receive mercy. That's brought through the cross. And promised to receive grace to help in time of need. That grace, it comes with our justification. More grace than we need. It's overflowing. It's irrepressible. It is immeasurable. Oh, Lord, move our hearts to drink of it constantly. For the glory of Jesus, the grace giver. Amen. Let us respond, beloved, with...